Well, grab your Bibles and open up to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. We started a new series last week because we finished up our old series. The old series was the teachings of Christ. And so the new series is called The Frontlines of Faith. 1 Timothy calls believers to grab their rifles, march to the front lines, and open fire. Uh, But listen, this is a war in the church. This is you and me battling in the church for what is right, what is true, and what is good. So, the front lines of faith. The book is written by the Apostle Paul to Pastor Timothy, his understudy. They had been serving together for decades. This was in the mid-60s, shortly before Paul would be put to death that he writes this to Pastor Timothy in the city of Ephesus. Um, I'll read to you in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3, where it says this, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Okay, now looking back, listen to what it says again toward the beginning, verse 3. I left you in Ephesus. I urged you to remain in Ephesus so that you can charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Here's the first thing you can write down. We're going to have to defend the faith, defend the faith from different teachings. Write that down. In the church, we're going to have to defend the faith from different teachings. Timothy, I'm leaving you in Ephesus because there's somebody over there and there's somebody over there. And you know what? They're teaching things that are, what's the word? Different. Everybody say that word with me. Different than what you're supposed to be teaching. Do you know you and I live in a world today that will tell us that what we believe is essentially the same thing as what other people believe? Maybe you've heard an athlete or an actress or someone say, well, after looking into the many different religions, I've concluded that they are basically teaching the same thing. Have you heard that before? Have you heard someone say, well, I've pretty much concluded that they're teaching the same thing. Listen, I just want you to hear what the Word of God says. The Word of God says that there's certain people in the church who will teach things that are different from what you believe. Uh, Listen, do you understand that the different religions of the world teach very different things from what you believe? Well, give me some examples. All right, I'll give you some examples. Um, Buddhists, do you know what they believe? They believe that there will be, waiting for you in the next life, in the afterlife, there will be nothing. There will be absolutely nothing waiting for you in the next life. I think we have a picture here, Buddhist worship. Um, Listen, what they're saying is, they're saying that after you go through a series of reincarnations where you finally realize that there's really nothing that's real about this universe, then you stop coming back and you essentially disappear forever. Eternity has nothing waiting for you. Now, let me just ask you, is that what you believe? It's different, right? 
Now, I'm not going to go into how we reach out to these people or how sincerely devoted they are to their faith or how we should respectfully talk with them. That's not today's message. Today, what I just want you to fundamentally understand is it's different. It's different. Okay, what about Islam? Do you know that um, most uh, who, be- who believe uh, Islam, most Muslims would say that Jesus never died on the cross? Jesus never died on the cross. Now, let me ask you this question. Is that what you believe? Can what you believe and what they believe be true at the same time? One is right, one is wrong. Either we're wrong and they're right, or they're wrong and we're one or the other. They can't both be true, and they're not the same thing. So I just need to establish that right now, because if we're going to defend the faith from different teachings, we have to just see that our teaching is special and unique and different from all other truth claims that are out there. Okay? Now here, this is important in Ephesus, because in Ephesus, there were many different truth claims out there. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, the book of Revelation, you'd learn a little history in Ephesus. When, when Christianity came to town, there was this massive revival that broke out, and all of these idol worshipers started burning their idols, and their mag- they were also into magic there. They started burning their magical things. It was, if you added it all up, it was millions and millions of dollars worth of stuff that these new Christians burned to, to let their old way of life go. Well, then the local, local silversmiths who were making the idols started losing money. So they decided to start a riot because of what it was doing to their business. Okay, here's a picture from Ephesus. This is the picture of the stadium. Uh, And at the stadium, there was actually once a riot where for two hours straight, the local people screamed uh, about their faith and they almost tore the Christians to pieces. That was two hours that was in Ephesus. All right, so it was to this city that the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, hey, 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 you go there and you teach some of them that what they're saying is wrong. And you could just hear Timothy saying, you want me to go where? You want me to go where? Now, in in this book, there was a truth problem. There were people teaching things they weren't supposed to teach. In the book of Revelation, do you remember what was said to the church in Ephesus? You've lost your first love. So first they have a truth problem. We assume that Timothy got that squared away. Then eventually they ran into a love problem where they turned into a bunch of cold, uh, truth-telling, loveless people who needed to be confronted on their love. This is Ephesus. But here, the problem is that there were people teaching different doctrines. Look back at verse 4. It says, charge them not to teach different doctrines. Then in verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God than than that is by faith. We're not told clearly what these false teachers were teaching. The Bible actually seems to be more concerned with the effect the false teachers are having on the church rather than what it is that they're teaching. But a few clues here, it says, devote themselves to myths, and endless genealogies. It also mentions the law. We think what was going on is that there were some teachers who were kind of like amateur Sunday school teachers. 
They didn't really know a ton about the Old Testament, but they found bits and pieces of genealogies and information, and they started teaching things that were kind of half true, kind of not true, okay? And uh, so, so we'll name that guy Mr. Philetus, okay? Mr. Philetus was teaching us that in this certain genealogy uh, that there was some sort of a special truth that he dug up, and we're supposed to believe him. And, and Timothy has to go to Mr. Philetus and be like, hey, Stop talking about those genealogies. Start talking about Jesus. Then, elsewhere in 1 Timothy, like in 1 Timothy 4.7, it says that some of these teachers were teaching, the Greek literally reads, old lady fables. <laughs> old lady fables. Uh, uh, grandma stories. No offense to our senior saints here, okay? But, but some other people were kind of sharing folklore Maybe it wasn't even in the Old Testament. These like kooky stories that most people know are weird, but a few, maybe a few of the new Christians or, the, or the, maybe the immature or the gullible, they were starting to buy into grandma's crazy stories. Myths. Myths and genealogies. The point is, Timothy had to come along and say, Stop telling those made-up things and start teaching about Jesus. And you, stop getting into the conspiracy theory, genealogies, and the mystic point. Just get out of all that and start talking about Christ. What do we learn from this? Well, we learn that today you're probably not going to get ancient Jewish myths or, or genealogies thrown in your face, but you will get things coming from pastors, from Christian school teachers, from Christian college professors. You'll get them teaching some things that are different from sound doctrine. And you have to have the discernment to say, wait a minute, that's different from what the Bible says. Wait a minute, that's different. And listen, I'm not talking about like something you heard on CNN News. I'm talking about something you heard from a professing Christian where you have to stand up and defend what you believe and say, hey, that sounds very different from what my Bible teaches me. You have to be ready. The word in verse 4 that says speculations rather than stewardship from God. The word for stewardship means redemptive plan. Redemptive plan. I think this refers to God's redemptive plan that he put in our trust. So what these folks are teaching is different than God's redemptive plan that is by faith. They're not teaching faith in Christ. They're teaching some other thing. We have to defend our church from such teachings. Listen, maybe you feel like, like that's harsh. Maybe you feel like, you know, why would you do that in the church? But this, this is the way it has to be. The way it has to be is if other people arise and they're teaching things different from what your Bible says, you're responsible to get up and defend your faith. Now that's the first thing it says, but it goes on to say this. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You can write this down. First, we have to defend the faith. Second, the goal is love coming from a sincere faith, good conscience, and a pure heart. Love. Now, I said last week, 1 Timothy is going to make our truth people really happy. Maybe you're more of a truth teller. You like to tell people what they need to hear. Maybe that's you. 
Well, at the very moment when you're about to detonate a truth bomb in the name of 1 Timothy, Paul says what? The aim of our charge is love. That, well, what does that have to do with truth? Love. That issues from, there's three things listed here, a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. Hey, listen, maybe you feel like you've grown disappointed with the church because the church in your mind has become unloving. Maybe you feel like the church needs to do a much better job of not just getting our truth out to the world, but of showing love to those people instead of making them feel condemned. You're right. You should feel that way. You should feel like it's your divinely given responsibility to bring the love of Christ and God to your home, to your classroom, to your workplace, to your church. You're right. We should fill the air with Christian love. But how does that happen? Because the first point, we need to defend the truth from different teachings. The second point, we now need to defend the love from it being watered down. And listen, we can't let go of the truth in the name of love. And we can't let go of the love in the name of truth. We have to bring both. And this point really tells us how they work together. Okay, look, if you want to fill your church with Christian love, what, where does it come from? Well, it says here, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Let's work that backwards. It says a sincere faith. The word for sincere in the Greek means not a hypocrite. Uh, literally, it's drawn from the theater. The theater, it means a mask wearer, one who puts a mask on to fake other people out. Check this out. At our, when we were at Stag High School, I found a mask backstage because we met in the theater. So I brought it on stage to illustrate this very concept. I had this mask, and then I was telling Mark some things uh, that I was making up, and I was wearing a mask the whole time that I was, that I was doing it. Do you know that in order for love to reach its highest form of sincerity, in order for it to truly resemble Christ's love, do you know that it needs to be sincere? Do you know that it has to be truthful to be real love? Maybe you've experienced the pain of trying to love someone who turned out to be somebody you didn't think they were. They put on a mask and they pretended to be one person, but in the end they were somebody else. That wasn't the highest form of Christian love you were experiencing, and now you know the pain that comes from insincerity. So listen, if you want to fill your church or your school with solid Christian love, that also means that you're a big fan of true sincerity. Meaning you want also for God's people to truly love Him. To not pretend to love Him, but to truly love Him. And you want God's people to truly, sincerely believe the gospel. And not just to fake it on Sunday so that they can do whatever they want on Monday. You want to fill this world with love? That means you also want to fill this, love with, this world with genuine, true faith. Otherwise, we'll just be a bunch of hypocrites running around, giving the world more reasons to not trust our faith. What about... What about good conscience? What does a good conscience have to do with true Christian love? Well, this means you have to behave in correct ways so your conscience is clear before God. And you have to help others behave in biblical ways so that their conscience is clear before God. Hey, listen, here's the truth. If you, through your influence, are leading somebody else down a sinful path, even if you say you love them, even if you tell them you love them, even if they tell you that they love you back, 
The fact that you're leading them into sin means it's not the highest form of Christian love because you're ultimately leading them away from love for Christ. So what does a good conscience have to do with true Christian love? It means you just you want not just the other person to be happy, but you want God to be happy with the other person because you know that, that that is what leads to their best life in this world. True love means you want the other person, whether it's a friend or, or more, you want that person to experience God's best in this life. So listen, you want to fill your school, your classroom, your church with love. We need more love going around this world. That means you also want to help other people get out of the entanglements of sin so that they can have a clear conscience before God who loves them. You want that. That's the highest form of biblical Christian love. It's love that leaves the other person with a clear conscience before God. What else? A pure heart. This is a heart purified by Christ's love and guided by Christ's love. This is Christian love. It, and the Bible teaches that love fulfills the law. Love fulfills the law. Meaning you showing this form of love to others and helping others to show it also, that's what Christianity is all about. Faith isn't just about staying out of wickedness. You know, avoiding bad things. Okay, is that really why we're here? To just not do bad things? No. We're here to learn how to act like God and to love other people around us. That's really what it's about. So, hey, we're supposed to defend the faith from different teachings. We're also supposed to understand that the goal is love that comes from a sincere faith, a good conscience, and a pure heart. In light of that, we have to step back and understand that anybody who will teach us another truth or anybody who will compromise the love is leading us off track. Reading on... It says this, the effect of these teachers in verse 6. It says, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. All right, back at verse 6, it says, these teachers are swerving their followers away. The word in the Greek for swerving means to miss. Because you're listening to this guy, because you're following her myths over there, you're missing the goal. You're missing altogether. All right, so check this out. This is a video we have of a field goal kicker, a college field goal kicker, missing a field goal. Go ahead and put that up there. Now, you know when a field goal is good, what do you do? Show me what you do when a field goal is good. Come on, don't leave me up here alone. When it's no good, what do you do? You run it in. All right, check this out. Here comes the kick. It's looking okay, and then, whoa! If you didn't see it, it's no good. They're going to show a replay, but this is a really close field goal that he should have made. All right. He just said it looked like a kite in the wind. Here it comes again. I've never seen like a hard up. left turn and I-30. Look at that. Oh! Okay, okay, okay. You can cut that, cut that. All right, listen. When the Bible says here, when it says that certain persons by swerving, The word swerving means no good. Missed. Missed. It's saying that there are some people professing Christians who will stand in front of the classroom or behind a pulpit and say things that are not true and in line with the gospel. 
And there's an angel on each side of that person going like this. No good. No. No good. Wait a minute. They've got the name pastor in front of them. Are they a professor with a degree? Are they swerving? And if you're following what they're saying, they're swerving you. No good. And here, it's just crystal clear. The Bible says that there are other people who teach what God's Word has to say. They stay in line with what the author intended it to mean, and it's good. It hit the mark. It's good. It's up, and it's good. Swerving is one descriptive word used of describing it. Another word is wander. They've wandered. They've turned away, verse 6. They've turned away. It also says they've wandered into vain discussion. Vain. It's vain. The word vain means empty. So uh, this Christmas, get your most difficult child an empty box. Try it. Wrap it up, let them open it, and then just watch what happens when they get an empty box. Because the the word for vain means empty. Meaning at the end of that person who claims to be a Christian, who's teaching your class or whatever, at the end of what they're saying, look in an empty box, that's what they just gave you. They just gave you nothing. They just gave you empty speculation that's not helpful. These are the ways that God is trying to describe the effects of false teachers in the church. This is why we have to defend the faith from different teachings. This is why we also have to defend the love that comes from a sincere faith, a good conscience, and a pure heart. The church that waters down the truth, or that lets the love grow cold, or that endorses sin, leads God's people into harm's way. That's why we all have to stand up for this. Reading on in verse 8, we we get a feel for what these false teachers were doing. It says that they, in verse 7, it says that they wanted to be teachers of the law, but they didn't really know what they were saying. Okay, but they were confident, but they really didn't know what they were talking about. In verse 8, it says, now we know that the law is good. This is Paul. He was a Pharisee. Likely, he had entire books of the Old Testament memorized. Okay, He was like an upper-level seminary teacher in the Jewish faith. And he's, he's heard what some of these other people are teaching, and he's like, they don't even know what they're talking about. But listen, he also says, we know that the law is good. Meaning the Old Testament, while it was fulfilled in Christ, is still good. One of my professors at Moody said, how much of the Old Testament still applies to Christians? He said, in one sense, none, because it's all fulfilled in Christ. But in another sense, all, because it reveals to us God's will, his intentions, his character, and his plan. It's true. And, and the law is still good for Christians to know. The Old Testament still gives us an eye into God's character, his plan, and it also shows us some of what he believes we should act like, right? So he says the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. All right, follow me here. These, uh, you know, this amateur Sunday school teacher over here who's getting obsessed with the genealogies, he's missing what the Old Testament is all about. He's totally looking past the moral imperatives found in the Old Testament that warn us of God's coming judgment. And grandma over here with her kooky stories that may or may not have even been in the Old Testament, she doesn't get it either. They're totally missing what the warnings that are in the Old Testament. Okay, And there's many purposes that the Old Testament had, 
Okay, but listen, basically the Old Testament was a big speed limit sign. It's supposed to show us we're breaking God's law. When you read the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments in particular, (laughs) good luck making it through those ten, an innocent person. You're a guilty lawbreaker in God's court of law, and so am I. The Old Testament was supposed to show us we're guilty of sin. We don't always realize we're sinning, right? Just like when you're on the expressway and then you pass a police officer and you're like, oh boy, how fast am I going? Oh, I'm going how fast? Oh, no. You're a Christian, so you never do that, right? You You don't know if you're breaking the law until you check the speedometer and then you see the next speed limit sign, right? And you're like, come on, give me a 65. Give me a 65. Come on, let it be. Oh, no, 45. Oh, I'm hung. I was breaking the law. The Old Testament is a big speed limit sign. It convicts us of the fact that we're breaking God's law. Another way you can think about it is it's the tornado warning going off. It's an early warning system that God is giving you to take shelter because his judgment is coming. Now, if you use the Old Testament like this, you're using it right. And basically what Paul does right now is he takes Old Testament principles and he applies those to say that God's judgment is still coming on these things. He's correcting the false teachers with the truth. So here's the next thing you can write down. Number three is this. God will judge lawless sin. And then there's a list. God will judge lawless sin. He's reminding Christians that they can deduce this from the Old Testament. Well, what are some of the sins that will be judged? He says, laid down for the just, but for the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane. For those who, here's the first one on the list, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Write this down. Uh, God will judge rebelling against my parents. He'll judge me for rebelling against my parents. You can write that down. The word strike is a very violent word. It practically slaughter them. Like it has gotten to the very end of the relationship where this person is practically mauling their parents. And guess what? God's watching. God's watching. Interesting that this one makes it first on the list. First on the list. I don't know how old you are or how old your parents are, but understand God cares how you treat your parents. He made it one of the big ten. Wow. What, What should I be doing for my parents? Well, the Bible says there's things we're not supposed to be doing. We're not supposed to be disobeying them. We're not supposed to be. But there's also things we are supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be honoring them. Honoring them. Meaning it's not enough to just do what they told me. I also have to honor them with gratitude and thankfulness. See, how did you treat your parents this week? What tone did you use? What words did you choose? What actions did you... I mean, you picked the wrong week to get sassy. (laughs) God is calling you out. If this week there was a rumble with your parents and it ain't fixed yet, God is calling you out. And he's saying, I care, I care how you treat your parents. I care. And it's always puzzling when we talk to high schoolers or college students who have ongoing unresolved conflict with their parents, but it seems like they want to improve their walk with Christ. Like, they should know that if they're at war with their parents, they're at war with their God. If you're at war with your parents, you're at war with your God. And Paul is reminding us here, the Bible is reminding us here that this is posted, the sign is up, this is what the law is meant to show us, that if we're not treating our parents with love and respect and gratitude, God is not happy with us. 
and God will judge it. Uh, a year ago, we got our son Jared involved in martial arts. And so he went to his first karate class and he loved it. He was kicking and punching. And then at the end of it, he came out and uh, his sensei walked him out into the lobby and uh, walked him up and said, you know, thank you, Mr. Hall, for bringing your son to martial arts. And then he looked at Jared and said, bow before your father. <laughs> and Jared did. And I said, I'll give you a triple if you can get the other kids to do it too. <laughs> they make the kids at this karate, uh, this karate uh, school, they make the kids honor their parents by bowing before them at the end of every week. And that's why this guy's rich. <laughs> I don't care what goes on in there. As long as the bow happens at the end, I'm a happy parent. (laughs) Listen, God wants you to have reverence, to have love, to have respect for your parents. He cares very much how you talk to them. It doesn't matter if they're old in their twilight years. It doesn't matter if you're young. It doesn't matter. He cares. Rebelling against my parents, sign is posted. I've got to get that going or God God will judge it. Next, taking the life of another. Taking the life of another. He says, those who strike their fathers and mothers. Then he says, for murderers. This is the person who takes the life of another. Uh, So murder is intentionally and wrongfully taking life. Therefore, it includes violent, premeditated violent murder. But it also includes uh, abortion, would be killing unborn children. Um, Listen, when Cain killed Abel, God said to him, Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. How graphic is that? I hear his blood crying to me. I hear his blood's voice telling me what you did. And the Bible says the murderer will be haunted till their last breath. God will judge the murderer. God will haunt the murderer. The sign's been posted. The law reveals it. The next one is this, committing sexual sin. Committing sexual sin. Those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers. And then it says this in verse 10. The sexually immoral. And then it says men who practice homosexuality. So two examples given here of sexual sin. The first is it just says the sexually immoral. Um, Now, this is a very broad word. Uh, The word in the Greek is pornos, which sounds a lot like what you think it does. Uh, it's where we get words like that. It's from the Greek. It's very broad. It's, it's an umbrella term that includes many forms of sexual sin. So sexual immorality could include fornication, which is sex before marriage, also adultery, which is sex during marriage with somebody you're not married to, or even lust in the heart, child molestation. All that stuff is included in this one broad category of sexual immorality. And Hebrews thirteen fourteen is very clear. It says this, God will judge the sexually immoral. It says, in fact, keep the marriage bed pure, for God will judge the sexually immoral. Sexual sin in the church and outside of the church invites God's judgment. Paul's drawing from the Old Testament to post the sign to show that this is punishable by God. Sexual sin. Then he says, uh, and men who practice homosexuality. Now, I preached a whole sermon on homosexuality in the past. So if you want to hear a whole uh, comprehensive treatment of this topic, go to that sermon. You can find it on our, online on our website. I'd love to take longer today to deal with this important topic, but I just don't have the time. Uh, but 
Here's the point in this text of why this is brought up. It's brought up because basically black and white, the Bible uh, says that homosexuality, that behavior is something that is not compatible with sincere Christian faith. Okay, now some people when they hear that will say, that doesn't sound very loving to try and tell a person that. And in my other sermon, I deal a whole lot with how we have to, as a church, show Christ's love to homosexuals inside and outside the church. All right? I deal with that, so listen to that sermon. But today the text is more concerned with the truth. Do we believe that this behavior can be compatible with the Christian faith? The answer is no. How do we know that? Well, first of all, the word used, the word used in the Greek is a compound word for uh, that phrase, men who practice homosexuality. It's just one compound word in the Greek. It's arsenokoites, arsenokoites. And the compound word is men bad, men bad. That's the word. So men bad, those who are going to bed with other men, um, are listed here among the sins that are called unholy, ungodly, profane. Now some people try and narrow that word, and they try and say, well, it was only dealing with homosexuals who were involved in temple prostitution, as if it's the prostitution part of it that made it wrong. Other people say, well, back in those days, there were some really young boys who were taken into the home of older men, so it's more like a child molestation thing that made it wrong. And then they try and argue that, therefore, homosexuality and its expression today between two people who really love each other isn't what the Bible was talking about. Okay, but what I'm going to tell you is this. They're tampering with the Bible. The word is intentionally broad. It just basically says, men bed. Therefore, it includes homosexual behavior in all of its forms. New Testament and Old Testament homosexual behavior is categorically rejected as sin. All right? You cannot get around that in the Bible, and anyone who tries to is tampering with the Bible. Now, how do we love them? How do we reach out to them as people who have a very special form of persecution in their life? All good questions, and I wish I had time to talk about that today. But what I, wanna, what I want you to understand here is the Bible, black and white, says that homosexual behavior is not compatible with sincere Christian faith. It can't be, okay? It's different than what God intends to be happening in his church. That's what the Bible says clearly. So committing sexual sin, taking the life of another, rebelling against my parents, God will judge these things, and this is how we use the law in the right way. The next one coming from verse 10 is this, practicing injustice. Practicing injustice. Examples listed here are, verse 10, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Enslavers, liars, perjurers. Um, these are people practicing injustice. Enslavers means kidnappers or slave dealers. Kidnappers or slave dealers. Uh, maybe you feel like, wow, hey, I'm really glad that our world has gotten past that whole slavery issue. Uh, no. No. Uh, human sex trafficking right now, human slavery is the worst it's ever been throughout history. It's a, it's a plague on humanity. There are According to the United States State Department, 20 million people, conservative estimate, 20 million people enslaved around the world today. Enslaved, human property, either for sex or for labor or working, whatever. 20 million. That's the whole population of Chicago times seven are slaves right now. 
Get all of Chicago in one place, multiply it by seven, and that's what our world is doing to other human beings on our watch. All right? I mean, come Lord Jesus and judge this filth, right? I mean, it's wrong. there's a sign posted in Scripture that enslaving other human beings is punishable by eternal wrath. And God is coming back to judge. And here the Bible in the New Testament keeps that sign posted. God's judgment is coming. Injustice could be enslavers, but there's also liars, people who just lie or perjurers, those who swear falsely or pervert justice, obstruct a fair trial or execute a false trial. These are people who are just dishonest and shady. Did you hear the story about a guy named George Michael? He, was, uh, he owns a $3 million lakefront mansion in Chicago. Did you hear the story about him several years ago? He didn't like his $80,000 a year tax bill. So he decided to go online and ordain himself and then, uh, and then turn his house into a house church so that he could be exempt from taxes. The only people who came to his church were his wife, but he still, he still stopped paying his taxes. And then when the government found out, guess what they said? You owe. <laughs> I mean, he's a crook. He's, he's deceptive. He's working the system, and now he's on the hook for millions of dollars in back taxes. Guess what? There's a sign posted in the Scripture that injustice like that is wrong. God is coming to punish it, and it has no place among God's people in the church. Here's the last point you can write down under this heading. Because it's the opposite of biblical teaching. Because it's the opposite of biblical teaching. When people are doing these things, it says here in verse 10, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Hey, listen, understand that there are certain teachings that Christians will teach you that are contrary to sound doctrine. There are certain loving things people will say that are contrary to sound doctrine. There are certain behaviors that professing Christians will engage in, and it's contrary to sound doctrine, and this is all aimed at discerning what's going on in the church. In the church. The word used there in the Greek for sound doctrine means healthy. means all the behaviors I just listed and the false teachings that are out there are not healthy for God's people. Check this out. This is a new burger released by Burger King in Japan. It's called the Black Burger. Check that out. The uh, bun is charcoal burned with bamboo charcoal, as is the cheese, and then the mayonnaise is dyed with squid ink. Squid ink. You want a bite? Does that look appetizing? So, so when the Bible says contrary to sound doctrine, it means healthy. It's not healthy. So when you accept what that teacher has to say, even though it's different. The Bible calls that unhealthy. You're taking a bite out of this burger. When, when you get rid of the love and you're just a stone-cold truth person, that's unhealthy because our goal is love. When you allow a friend or a fellow professing Christian to engage in things that you know are sinful, it's unhealthy. It's unhealthy. And when you go to a church where false things are taught, this is what you're eating. This is what your kids are eating. It's unhealthy. It's unhealthy. This is the way the Bible's trying to get you to understand the effects of these false teachers. Contrary to sound doctrine. Now listen, at the end of this list, where it says God will judge lawless sin, rebelling against parents, taking the life of another, committing sexual sin, practicing injustice. I don't know about you, but I'm guilty of a whole lot of things that fall into these categories. 
Like, I don't get down to the bottom of that list and say, phew, I'm glad my name's not in it. I'm like, uh-oh, uh, I can say some things with that one that I've done and that one that I've done and that one that I've done. And, and it makes you wonder why Paul would even do this because he's like firing all these bullets of these sins. And, and we all, if you're honest, are kind of like, I'm guilty. Uh, what do I do with that? Because God's judgment is coming. And I'm guilty of some of those things. I'm guilty of a lot of those things, most of those things, all of those things. Now, now I have this weight, this burden of guilt. What do I do with this? And I love verse 11. The Bible says, contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The word gospel means good news. The good news of the glory of the blessed God. Glory is a bright word. The good news of the brightness of God that he gave to me to give to you. Wow. Write this down for the last point. Defend the faith from wrong teaching because the goal is love and God will judge lawless sin. But write this down. We bring the good news of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the reason why he wanted to shut down this wacky Sunday school teacher and cuckoo over there is because the good news wasn't getting out to people who needed it. He calls it the gospel of glory, the good news of light. And after listing all of these dark, insidious, hell-worthy behaviors that we are guilty of, he says, he says he's got good news. And understand who it was that was holding this good news. Do you know, I shared this last week, but you know the Apostle Paul, before he was saved, he was a murderer. He went city to city and threw Christians in jail, injustice. He perverted justice. He was a false teacher because he taught Christ was a loony and not the Messiah. In other words, he just listed his own track record. And then he said, but I've been entrusted with this good news of glory to give to other people like me. Wow. Therefore, the church isn't supposed to rise up on our pedestal and go around beating people over the head as if we're better than them. No, no, we are just as guilty. But we have this good news of glory that God gave to us and we get to share it with other people. Christianity is really just one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. I'm a condemned guilty sinner who's coming to you with hope that God has given us good news. And the good news is that we can be forgiven. You look back through that list of everything that was just listed there, you can be forgiven of all of it. God will forgive anyone of anything in Christ. And I just can't help but think that there are some people in this room right now who feel like God has rejected you, that God can never love you, that God would never accept you. Hey, that's false. That's false. God sent Christ into the world to save sinners. And if the Apostle Paul, a man who had the blood of Christian men and women on his hands, if he could hold the gospel and share it with other people and be forgiven by God, so can you. That's good news. That's good news. And I want to give you a chance here at the end of the message to just realize this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the faith we're defending because this is the way to get God's love to the ends of the earth. God's judgment is coming, but His grace is available to each one of us today. 
And hey, I want you to have a chance right now to receive the gift of eternal life through God's Son, Jesus. I want you to have that chance right now. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes and let's pray to God together right now. Father in heaven, your word is true. Your word is true and your law is posted and we have broken it. Lord, I have broken it. I have committed sins, Lord, that have made me worthy of being sentenced away from you forever. Lord, no one is righteous, not even one. And I just feel for those people in this room today who don't know the gospel. They don't have true faith in Christ. They're not living with peace. But today they can find you. Today they can receive you. Today can be the day that they trust Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. And I want to give them a chance to pray to you, just to talk to you, the God who made them, the God who loves them, just to talk to you in faith. To pray in their own hearts something like this, Father, I'm guilty as charged. I'm guilty and I give up the fight. Here and now, I confess that I am a sinful person. Here and now, I confess that I'm unholy and profane and a lawbreaker, prone to all forms of immorality. But I ask, Jesus, that you would come into my life, forgive my sins, and give me this good news If a murderer like the Apostle Paul can know he's going to heaven, then thank you that I can too. Wash away my sins, whatever they are. Convince me of your love and help me to walk with you for the rest of my days. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.